Spencer, bicycle racing has started, and I know this past weekend you were out racing your own bicycle at the Land Run 100 in Oklahoma. Big gravel race. Tell me about this sweet bike you were riding. That's right, Fred. This is the first of our series of gravel races that we're covering this season for Velo News, and we've got a lot of awesome sponsors. One of them is Canyon, and Canyon provided their Grail gravel bike for this race. This bike's pretty cool. It's got a really unconventional handlebar that has sort of, uh, it's like, they call it the hover bar. You have to see it to really understand it, but basically gives you a little bit of comfort vibration reduction on the tops. And it's also got this great seat post design that similarly helps reduce the bumpiness of these long gravel races like this one. And I'll tell you what, when I got around mile 90 or so, I was pretty glad to have that because I was I was struggling. I've got a lot of work to do before I uh, get going to Dirty Kansas and start of June. Yeah, Land Run, known for its mud, but it sounds like this year was dry fast and bumpy, but sounds like your body survived. It did, uh, and I just put put together a little video, five tips for riding Land Run. You can check that out on the Velonews website. It's, it's a really fun event. I'd recommend it if you guys can get out to it next year. Uh, but thanks to Canyon for sponsoring our gravel coverage this year. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Velonews podcast. Fred Dreyer here, Spencer Paulison, Andrew Hood phoning in from Europe. Uh, as you mentioned in our read, Bicycle racing has started. Spencer, what, you were at this land run. What are the ways in which land run has changed from last year to this year? We, we've written about how this race has grown really quickly. Give me just the, the quick rundown of how this race is changing. Yeah, I'm glad you asked, Fred, because I noticed that myself, and it's amazing. The, the expo area is significantly bigger. There are a lot more bicycle brands that want to be part of this race that have they have their tents set up. They're doing demos and other fun stuff for the people that are at the race. The other thing I noticed was that <laughs> this race is a lot more competitive than it was last year. Last year, I was able to kind of hang with the front group for the first half of the race, maybe. And this year, it wasn't even an option. I was I was totally just surviving. And I mean, maybe I'm a little less fit this year, but my overall finish time was approximately the same as it was last year. And I can tell you that my placing was quite a bit lower on the leaderboard than it was in 2018. So very cool to see so many people coming out for this race and so many bike brands getting behind it to support gravel racing. Uh, is that race director guy still uh, starting the race off with like a screamo band, like getting on stage and just screaming at people while strumming a guitar? Bobby, I believe his name is. Well, so he does that for the riders meeting the day before. Uh, okay. And now the race itself starts off with a cannon that he shoots off. Yeah. He just has a huge like military grade cannon that he shoots off. And then, of course, he's at the finish to give everyone a hug. He was also out on course at the top of this really steep climb called Brethren Hill, cheering people on about 20 miles in. That was nice to see. He was, he's just got more energy than I think anyone I've ever met at a bike race. Yeah, at some point, Velenews, we need to do like a rating for uh, domestic race promoters or sort of like a field guide. It's yeah. like, no, you're domestic race promoter. They're, they're, this is the maniac who screams and plays guitar. This is the guy who, you know, like wears a hat and like makes sure the results are in order. And a lot of great personalities out there. Uh, well, you you were not the only one riding your bike this weekend. I I rode my bike, Spencer. You oh, see, man. Uh, I, we have a very robust coverage of the classics coming up. I'm going to be over there with Andy Hood. We're going to be drinking Leffa and 
walking around in the rain, hanging out in Ghent, interviewing these riders. But I'm also going to be doing the sportives, the amateur events for Ghent Wevelgem, oh. uh, Tour of Flanders, and Paris Roubaix. Roubaix is going to oh, be man. so I've, brutal. I've done the first two before, never done the Roubaix one. But you're going to be so tired by that point, having yeah. reported those races and done those rides. And yeah, it's oh, Fred, long day. And and the, the little secret is, I have not been riding my bicycle too hey, much. Hey, you're rested. It's good to go into these things rested. You don't some, want to be too cooked. Doing some jogging, doing some skiing, doing some working. No a lot of riding. You'll need to be doing some jogging when you go up the Koppenberg in that sportif, tell you what. So here's the thing. I, I, I did a little ride on Saturday, and I like was going to meet up with an actual organized ride. Hmm. But uh, I was running a little late, and I glanced at the website of where this ride was, like the route. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'm, I'm not going to be there for the start, but I'll meet him at the top of the first climb. Oh, you're that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it turns out I had read the route completely backwards. <laughs> so they went and did the flat stuff and then the climbs, and I was just standing at the top of the You're climb waiting for there for like 45 yeah. minutes. So Nice. Uh, riding season has begun, which means screwing up while riding your bike for me has begun too. Uh, Andrew Hood, he, he, have you been getting out on that bike? You uh, you out there pedaling yet? Or I know you're sort of a warm warm weather guy when it comes to the bike. What what's going on out in España? Well, actually, this weekend uh, we hit the last weekend on the slopes up in the, the Pyrenees. Actually, we were up uh, skiing down the Tourmalet during the winter. The Tourmalet is closed, and it becomes the La Mangie ski station high in the snow covered uh, Pyrenees. So we hit the slopes on Saturday and Sunday with some really slushy spring skiing conditions. But, uh, yeah, I've been hitting the bike. It's been a pretty mild winter over here in Espana. Uh, I've been hitting some, uh, hitting some pretty good miles. Hoodies, man. I'm, I'm, I'm sleek, man. 78 kilos. Oh yeah. Hoodie looking good. Uh, when you were at La Mangie, were you bragging to people on the, uh, gondola being like, Psh, I'm here in the summer. You should see, I was here back in 2005 when, you know, Frank Schleck attacked up and did just telling war stories to a bunch of people on the ski lift. Yeah. It's, it's actually quite interesting to be out there in the, in the winter time because you see really just how bloody steep, uh, the, the tourmalet is. And when you come, you know, you're flying down it, uh, you know, in the spring skiing conditions, it really makes you just appreciate the grandeur of the Tourmalet and just the Pyrenees in general. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a guy. I always kind of like the Pyrenees a little bit more than uh, than the Alps for some reason. And uh, it was quite an adventure to ski there. It's pretty good skiing if you're if you're, if you're ever in the Pyrenees in the winter. It's worth a stop. All right, we'll put it on our list. I know the ski talk. We got to talk about bike racing mm. because. We have had a pretty full slate of bike racing in the last week with both Perinese and Tirreno Adriatico wrapping up. We have Milano San Remo coming up this weekend. Holy cow. Get stoked. Are Get you, stoked. I, I, it's one of those years where I like look at my watch and I'm like, wait, it's already mid-March? Hmm. We have La Primavera coming up. We're going to make some bold predictions, talk about why this race is always so hard to predict. But before all of that, before we get to the racing, we need to talk about the big news that broke uh, just a day and a half ago. And that concerns our good friend, Dave Brailsford, Sir Dave Brailsford, <laughs> and our friends at Team Sky, because uh, they have found a new sponsor to take them through 2019 and beyond. Uh, that company is called Ineos. I listened to the pronunciation many times. It is a multinational petrochemical. Well, actually, no, it's a private company, petrochemical company owned by the richest man, Great Britain. Um, Andy, you've been doing some great reporting around this, getting people's reactions to this. Uh, I guess the place where I'd like to start off this discussion 
is the whole is, is revisiting this topic and what we talked about several months ago, which was, wow, Sky is losing their sponsor. They have this huge budget. It's going to take them forever to find a company big enough to write this big of a check. This may be the end. The sky is falling. Hoodie, as it turns out, that was, that about, was just not the case. About three months. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not too bad. Yeah, it, it says a lot about, about Brailsford, uh, I suppose the Sky organization, that they could turn around and land such a big fish on such a short amount of time. We've seen teams fold. They've had sometimes a year notice. Sometimes they've had sponsors that pull out mid-season. But we've seen this, these agonizing searches go down to the last minute. I mean, just uh, two years ago, we had the garment slipstream, you know, going to crowdfunding before they pulled together the education first deal. And that's kind of the problem with these, these big budget teams these days is that it requires such a large infusion of cash to run and operate a, a world tour team that it's harder to find people that have 20, 30 million bucks to plunk down on a short notice. So that's why a lot of these teams get caught out when they might have six months or even a year to search for a new sponsor but, you know, as you know, in, in the world of a big business, you know, budgets are made years in advance. And so, so, so it's quite I think it says quite a lot about the power of Sky, the allure of Team Sky, where that team is within the kind of larger perspective within just the UK and the sports scene there. And the fact that Brailsford could reel this guy. I mean, Radcliffe, this guy, he is rich. I mean, he is wealthier than anybody that's ever come into cycling before. I think it's pretty important to understand that. I mean, we talk about Makarov. And some of these other guys that are so-called billionaires, they're, they're billionaires with single digits. This guy's double-digit billionaire. He's one of the 50th wealthiest men on earth. He's kind of like the Jeff Bezos of the UK. He's the wealthiest man in the UK. So that right there says a lot. And that's this is a huge get for the team Sky. Is Ratcliffe related to the actor who played Harry Potter? Hmm. Yeah, probably we'll not. Check, we'll have to fact check yeah, on that. Probably not. Yeah, I think something that stands out to me uh, with this was that um, – you know, we were when we were creating a short list of companies that might um, sponsor Team Sky. You know, you throw out, you know, you start looking around. Oh well, what are the what are the different industries that are going to get involved in cycling? You know, it's traditionally it's like banking or it's media and you or know, or bike companies or bike companies. And you know, you start to start to pull into the numbers, and it's like, well, you know, if this were any other team, you know, this wouldn't be necessarily feasible. But as I mentioned, this when we started where we talked about this a few months ago, Team Sky is a different value equation because it is a it is a machine built for winning the Tour de France. And so if you are coming on board with this, you are not just um, buying all the media impressions that come with winning the Tour de France, but you are buying the emotional attachment to being a Tour de France champion. Sometimes that's thrown around in, you know, with these valuations of American sports teams of like, well, you know, based off of the ticket revenue and the, you know, TV rights, we think that the valuation would be a billion dollars. But it's like, yeah, but there's also... The emotional value that comes from being the, you know, the most popular guy in Dallas, if you own the Dallas Cowboys or the most popular person in New York City, if you own the Knicks and all the cachet that that buys for you. And so when you look at a team like Team Sky and, you know, they're guaranteed to be competitive or maybe even win the Tour de France for the next few years, um, you're buying this emotional attachment to being the biggest person in this global sport. And I think that when you start to run the numbers, you know, yeah, they may seem like really big numbers, but 
Can you really put a price tag on that? And also everything's set up and ready to go. This isn't uh, something that anyone will have to assemble or reassemble. They won't have to create the formula for winning the tour. They've got it. It's all staying in place. The Team Sky Fortress that has protected Chris Froome and the other GC riders since 2012 is still there. And that's, that's what's so crazy about it is they're just swapping logos on the jersey and onto the tour. So, Hoodie, what can you tell? What more can you tell us about this Ineos company and uh, its owner, private owner, Sir Jim Ratcliffe? Yeah, just from doing some uh, uh, investigation, trying to talk to a few people. You know, he's he's kind of, uh, you know, he started this company Ineos in the late '90s. He picked up some pieces from uh, BP and uh, kind of just built this. You know, self-made billionaire. He's been kind of called. He's been called the most successful industrialist in the UK since World War II. He's, uh, you know, 66 years old. He's quite fit. Sounds like he's a cyclist. He's a keen. Uh, he, he, does, he takes part in some of these big Grand Fondo rides. Uh, you know, but of course, uh, working in the petrochemical industry, there is some baggage that comes with that. Uh, we've already seen a few protests or just comments coming from from some environmental groups saying that uh, that. Uh, that his company, Radcliffe, is trying to use Team Sky to greenwash some of the negative impacts of, of, of this company with plastics. He's promoting fracking. Evidently, he's a Brexiteer. He raised some uh, rack, uh, raised some eyebrows when he was knighted and then moved to Monaco because he didn't have to pay the big taxes. So I think there's going to be a little bit of baggage that comes with the sponsorship. You know, perhaps within the UK market, I'm sure there'll be there'll be much ado made about some of these uh, issues over the next kind of weeks. It sounds like he's a real sports fan too. I, I was reading some things on him about how he had run the London Marathon. He has a running group that he runs with every morning. Um, I believe he is Ineos is sponsoring a. America's Cup sailing team for 2020 or 2021. That's an expensive sport. That's a big old expensive sport. And the the other thing was that for the last few years, or at least the last year, he has been rumored to be uh, sniffing around on buying Chelsea Football Club from Roman Abramovich, the ex-KGB. I believe he's ex-KGB, who uh, owns like the nice club. Um, and, and he has been public in uh, Ratcliffe has been public and saying, yes, I am interested in owning Chelsea. And, you know, when you start talking about, boy, Chelsea and Liverpool, Arsenal, some of these big English Premier League teams, that's a really exclusive class of person who has the motivation and the resources to own that. So I, I also think that speaks to really the, you know, the big fish that Brailsford has landed. Big, big, big fish. So congrats, to, to Brailsford. Yeah, I think when you look at it from Dale, Dave Brailsford's perspective, this is the ideal sponsor, really, isn't it? I mean, he's a guy that's going to come in who has even more resources than than uh, Murdoch and the, and the Sky Company. Um, and Brailsford retains his complete control of the organization. It's not some sort of merger or some sort of uh, new combo with a new sponsor where he might get a real kind of proactive sponsor with an agenda. It sounds like that Radcliffe will let Brailsford do what he's been doing so well already. And uh, you have the same budget and perhaps even more. There's rumors that, that uh, Radcliffe has already said, well, he'll spend more money if he has to on this team. So already Brailsford, he comes out you know, even in a better position than he was coming into this already in 2019. And he still has Egon Bernal under a five-year contract. What more could they buy if they had a bigger budget? I mean, geez, like double guitars, chocolate saxophones? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. The next great Colombian talent. 
Hoodie, you have been, so we've seen some responses on Twitter and most of it has been very positive. People publicly in the sport saying, okay, this is good for cycling. We didn't want to see Sky go away. We didn't want to see Sky reduced. Um, I've seen some tweets from fans that are not in the same uh, vein as that. I've got some texts from some of my friends being like, oh, God, (laughs) real grumbly stuff. Um, You've been calling around, though, to directors, riders, other people in the sport. Uh, What type of feedback have you been getting in in these phone calls? Yeah, that's right, Fred. I mean, uh, at the macro level, everyone is kind of relieved that Sky could could find a sponsor. You wouldn't want to see the most successful team in the sport just – collapse and fade away that, that wouldn't speak highly of the entire uh, peloton in general uh but i think behind the scenes you know there's a couple of off the comment off the record comments people are like going man you know we're kind of secretly hoping that that whole team would just dissolve into the peloton we all could kind of take our our little chunks off the sky carcass and you know really have a chance to win the tour because um, you know as it is right now with the budget they have and the lineup they have and like you said, it's a machine made to win the Tour de France. And they're, not, they're not so strong in the classics. And even even some of the other races like we saw at Torino, they weren't really a factor there. Um, so, you know, there, there are a few chinks in their armor. They don't have a sprinter really anymore at Team Sky. So, you know, it's a machine made for the Tour and made for a few select stage races throughout the year. And what they do, they do it better than anybody else. Um, but I think there, there were some people kind of secretly hoping – that Sky actually would fade away and, then, and that suddenly the tour would be, quote, wide open. But I think that, uh, that also the people I was talking to, they're also doubly motivated. You know, they, they don't want to just take it laying down from Sky. You know, the competition actually has gotten quite tight. I think any advantages that Sky might have had a few years ago, the Peloton in general has caught up to them. Uh, you know, Froome is kind of entering the last few years of his of his kind of peak. So I, I think a lot of teams also see an opportunity to try to knock Sky off its throne. I would never want for cycling to lose a big team, lose a big sponsor. That sort of thing never goes well. But as a fan, I would love to see a Tour de France where you have Chris Froome racing against Egon Bernal, racing against Garrett Thomas. Can you imagine how much more exciting that would be if so many of these superstars were on different teams and were up against each other in the biggest, most important race of the season. Yeah, and that was some of the feedback that I saw online, too. Uh, there was a Guardian story that quoted Jonathan Vodders. I don't know when these quotes were from, but he likened uh, Team Sky to, you know, hey, cycling is like a chess game, and it's not so much fun if you're playing against a, a chess player that has, like, six queens. Um, <laughs> you know, that, you know, all of us are in this game of, uh, you know, lacking resources, and then there's one team that has all the resources, and he he said that, um, you know, this is actually hurts cycling in terms of trying to bring in new sponsors, because if you're some other team and uh, it, it used to be you could potentially sell a sponsor on the idea of you may be able to win the Tour de France for, you know, 15 million euro or whatever. And that's just not the case anymore, because you can go to a sponsor and say um, you may be able to win a stage of the tour or get a top 10 for your 15 million. But and, you know, if you really want to go up against Team Sky, you're going to have to um, really up. But at the same time, I mean, it speaks to just the dynamics that we see in all sports, which is there are dominant teams. There are teams that do it better. There are um, there are dynasties. And um, that just the, the dynamic that happens when you have a dynasty is it forces everyone to just get better. So come on, pro cycling, just get better. <laughs> Seems simple to me. Um, well, we're going to be keeping an eye on the Ineos uh story as it develops and again i've heard it i've heard it said as ineos like 
uh, like Daniel Oss. It's going to be any awesome team. Yeah, as opposed to Ineos as like Carlos uh, Betancourt. Hmm. So maybe that will be the big story that we chase for this following week. Uh, but speaking of Ineos and Team Sky, we have some racing to get to. Uh, the first race I want to talk about, we saw the f- thrilling finale of Paris-Nice. And throughout this entire week, I felt like Team Sky was just flexing, just mm. flexing its muscles, just guttering people in the crosswinds. Kwiatkowski yeah. was in the lead for a, a number of days, and Egan Barnal ended up taking the overall with Kwiatkowski in third. Hoodie, when you look at the ebb and flow of this race, uh, what are you coming away with, both in terms of Egan Bernal and Sky? Yeah, I agree. They were impressive. I mean, you just walk away impressed, really, with Bernal. You know, the, the composure and poise that he has at, at 22 is, is almost, it has to be frightening, really, to, to his competitors because, you know, he was really under pressure in this entire race. I mean, those echelons, those wins were brutal those first two days. It's, Perinis is always kind of notorious for the crosswinds in, in the first couple of days, but this year was even worse. We saw that horrible crash with Michael Matthews, got a concussion. Um, a few other guys were crashed out. So to see him you know, handle himself just in those echelons, being a little skinny climber guy, just shows you how good he is. And then he goes into the time trial and smashes it, I think finishes you know, in the top five in a 25K time trial. And granted, there's no, no Tom Dubalon or Chris Froome there, but to be right there to keep his uh, GC hopes alive. Then to see him go toe-to-toe with Nairo, the Torini, and then see him not kind of panic or or fold when Moe started through the gauntlet at him on that last kind of really tough stage around Paradise. It's like, man, is, is Bernal even just better than everyone thought he is? I mean, this this kid's just amazing. Yeah, he totally is. And he, he was sixth in the time trial, by the way, Hoodie, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, he, he was unflappable. Uh, that final stage around Nice always is exciting. It looked like Nairo Quintana had been maybe studying up on his Alberto Contador history, trying to do a little sneak attack on that final stage and a fine effort by him to try and get it back, but not enough to to take the overall from Bernal or more more accurately to take it from Sky because, yeah, like you said, Hoodie, he was cool and he let his teams he let his team take over and, and chase back that breakaway to a point where they wouldn't have to worry about the overall. Spencer, any Bernal uh, Giro d'Italia takes coming out of this? What's your take? I think Bernal's going to be the top favorite for the Giro. I I just the way he was riding at Paris Nice, the way that Dumoulin still hasn't shown himself yet. Sure, Dumoulin won in twenty seventeen. Don't ever want to count him out. But man, and we'll talk more about Roglic in a second too, but but Bernal, plus, like I said, this having, having Team Sky with him, there's just no other team that can defend a GC like that. And yes, Team Sky's had its issues at the Giro over the years. Maybe Bernal's the one to break Team Sky's Giro curse. Well, actually, Chris Froome won't let us. What am I talking about? <laughs> but he's he's got a great shot. Uh, yeah, he is very good at biking. Um, so after Paris-Nice, we saw the conclusion of um, Tirreno Adriatico. And actually, you know what? Before we get off of Paris, I wanted to say the other thing I was keeping my eye on at Paris was that individual time trial, which was actually won by Simon Yates. And yeah, we didn't have a ton of heavy hitters there, but you know, it was a 25.5 kilometer time trial. It was pretty flat. And to see 
Simon Yates win a time trial. Um, I thought that was a bit of a flex too, especially with him trying to come into form before the Giro d'Italia. So don't think you can fly under the radar so quickly, Simon Yates. We have our eyes on you. That was his first time trial win ever. Anything. Even I think I looked at the the Mitchelton Scott press release after. I don't think he's even won a time trial when he's an amateur. So something's he's figured something out there, and uh, that'll really help him because there's three time trials in the Giro d'Italia this year. It's it's not strictly a climbers race like it usually is. Hoodie, any takeaways from Mr. Yates winning a time trial at uh, Paris? Yeah, I think that uh, I, I agree with with uh, Spencer. I mean, Yates just continues to progress and impress. And you have to remember, these guys are young, too. I mean, Yates is only 26. These guys have been knocking around, really, for three or four years, having shots at leading GC in uh, one-week stage races. You know, both the brothers getting shots in the Grand Tours. Of course, last year, Simon won the Welta. And I think Adam Yates will do quite well in this year's tour. He's obviously looking, uh, you know, lost that heartbreak on the, the, the Terreno final time trial uh, this week to uh, Roglic. But both the Yates brothers are just continuing to kind of move up. And I think, you know, these guys are just going to be hitting their pride really in the next couple of years. They're, just, they're going to keep getting better. Uh, we don't want to totally spoil our Giro coverage, but Hoodie, you spoke with Mr. Simon Yates. And the guts of that interview are coming up in our big Giro d'Italia preview May print issue of Vela News Magazine. But give, give us a little taste, just a little taste of what old Simon had to say about this year's Giro. Yeah, I mean, he he walked. He came away from last year's Giro. He said it really changed him as a rider, and in many ways. First off, you know, it really proved to himself that he could really race to win a Grand Tour. Uh, you know, he flamed out there, you know, quite infamously on the Finestre, and it was what you know one of the greatest stages I think anyone has ever you know any of us have seen really live. You know, when Froome just rode away from everybody. You know, so you think maybe in a weaker person that uh, might have been devastating to Yates. But that really just, you know, made him stronger mentally. He said physically he was completely wiped out from that experience. It took him like a, he went to the Maldives, just completely turned off his phone, mm. didn't touch his bike for a whole month. He said it just absolutely wiped him out. But mentally, he said it was probably almost the best thing that could have happened to him because he came back more determined than ever. You know, won the Welta last year, and this year he's coming back doubly motivated to to uh, make up for uh, last year's big big mistakes, and he's. He's really keen on winning and very confident. Okay, that's a little taste. That's good. Just a little taste for the full for yeah. the full dinner for the full entree on that one. You got to check out the magazine. Uh, I want to go to the Maldives. Yeah, turn off my phone. Must be nice. Man, must must be, nice. be nice. Uh, moving on, we had Terreno Adriatico uh, end in thrilling fashion, where the other Yates. Uh, Adam Yates was controlling the race for the entire week. We saw some really zany stages at this year's Tirreno. We yeah, saw that circuit stage where Lushenko is off the front. He crashes twice, gets back on his bike, gets caught, still wins the sprint. That's yeah. completely amazing. Um, and then Yates loses it. Heartbreaking. One second in the final time trial to Primoz Roglic, who had been just stalking him Ooh. the entire week. And again, guys, Primoz Roglic, that's two big week-long stage races this year. Uh, Hoodie, did you know he used to be a ski jumper? I, I read that somewhere. Fascinating. Well, that's, we'll have to do a story on that. I'll have to look into that. Great, uh, great angle. Guys, uh, first of all, so with Roglic, you know, he's 
really strong right now. Do we think there's a fear that he is peaking too soon? Is that a thing that we might be worried about? Or I don't know. Do we, you, you talked to his team director, Hoodie. What are they thinking about Rogla as he heads to the Giro? Yeah, I don't. I didn't get the sense. I was talking to Richard Pluga, the, the general manager at, uh, uh, at the team there today at uh, Jumbo Visma. And uh, I didn't get the sense that they're too worried about that at all. Um, they, they're just they're just completely always just uh, so surprised themselves about how well and how fast uh, Roglic is adapting to uh, the new sport. I mean, really, uh, Matt White put it best, the sport director, Mitchelton Scott. I talked to him today as well. And he said that Roglic is 29 going on 23 in the terms of his kind of uh, progression as a professional cyclist because, you know, he came into the sport quite late. You know, didn't really have those kind of inherent bike handling skills, kind of like uh, the your man there at uh, Slipstream, Michael Woods, came into the sport quite late from a different sport. So a guy like Roglic, you know, he's just kind of hitting his prime in his late 20s. So he's really almost like if he were in his early 20s in the sense of uh, his skills and development and maturity as a racer, even though he has physically is matured you know, well, well beyond that, that what that age might be. And so, you know, now they're, they're, you know, they're just convinced now following his fourth place last year at the Tour de France, that every race they go to now with Roglic, they're racing to win. That's, that's the mindset they have. And that's, that's a huge change, not only for that organization, but also just for Roglic, you know, he has that confidence now that he's going to the Giro to win. End of story. Plus, he's just a stone-cold killer, as far as I'm concerned. You see him race, and you can tell he's got that edge. He knows when to really bury the knife and make that attack on the climbs. Or this this final time trial in Torreno was just like watching a lion take down a gazelle on the savannah. Just seeing, seeing Yates rocking and rolling on his bike, struggling through the final kilometer of that. It was a short time trial, too, 10 kilometers. But he was at the at the limit, and <laughs> Roglish got him by just one second. Yeah, Spencer, you watched that time trial. But I'm doing God's work. I'm yeah, glad most yeah. of us do not watch these time trials. But uh, take us through the thrilling, thrilling last few minutes of that thing. Right, and backing up a sec, I will say this time trial. It's a tough one for a guy like Yates. He acknowledged that before the race the day before and it's it's flat and it's also prone to be windy because it's on the coast and sure enough it was a headwind on the way back on this out and back route and i think that just the the it added up for yates and he got to that final kilometer and you're looking at the time split on the screen where it's his elapsed time and then his gap to keep the overall lead on Ruglish. And it's like they're in sync where he's gaining a second on the overall, losing a second. And it's just, you see it counting down and the, the finish line's in sight. And he just didn't have that final push. But I'll tell you what also though, I saw the Velon data that they put out a little data afterward on Yates's uh, performance in that time trial. He wasn't like soft pedaling in. Something like 370 watt average for that final kilometer, I believe. If I'm, it was around that neighborhood, and that is a lot for a little guy like him, especially to do it in a time trial position. So not all is lost for Adam Yates, but it certainly proves that Primoz Roglic is is a well rounded GC contender. Yeah, I think he's my guy for the Giro. Uh, I like Matt White's take on it. Uh, 29 going on 23. I, I actually like to think of myself 
<laughs> as 37 going on 23, maybe 22. It feels like that in the office yeah, often. That's Definitely true. The way you, your diet and everything. Well, we're going to have some, we have plenty of opportunities to assess these Giro contenders over the next few months as they get ready for the Giro d'Italia. I think this is going to be a cracker of a Giro, as they say overseas, a cracker or maybe a biscuit. Is it a biscuit uh, or a cracker? I don't know. I just read some really hot take, though, that the Giro is more exciting than the Tour. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. News news alert. Giro more exciting than the Tour. Uh, guys, before we get to talking about Milan San Remo, Spencer, we have the new gear issue of Velo News magazine out right now. We're, we put a lot of a lot of hard effort into it. A lot of heart and soul went into it. Yeah, it's tough to ride all those bikes oh and have all that gosh, new gear. And, no, oh, you have to take all the tags off the apparel. Oh god, I know. All Think these, of the waste. Like just expensive bicycles coming in, and we have to ride it. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one of the bikes I rode. I yeah. rode the uh, Cannondale Synapse. That is the sort of gravel prototype. It has thicker uh, tires on it, disc brakes, uh, real comfortable bike. But you know what? I've ridden some of these grand. You know, some of these comfort bikes, some of these real relaxed geometry bikes, and they're kind of noodly, and you don't really feel that cool. Riding around on one, you feel like maybe you need to have a little bit more gray hair. That was not the case with this Cannondale Synapse. I felt it was very racy, and I uh, took it off-road a couple times on some of the gravel roads around here. Oh, no. Just ate it up. I was okay. You didn't flat or anything? No, no flats. Wow. No, uh, you know, I did have the mud streak going up my backside. Well, that's, that's just part of gravel riding. Yeah, it's standard. Uh, otherwise, though, I found it to be a buttery, fast uh, bike, hmm. and I'm going to be putting some more miles on it because yeah. I, I really liked it. Check out that gear issue. We got a lot of reviews, got a lot of great information on how you can spend your money wisely when you uh, want to upgrade your bike or get a new bike. All right, guys, it is cur- we're currently re- recording this on a Wednesday. We're a day late this week. Hoodie had to get to yoga. Um, but we, we have Milana San Remo. Milano San Remo coming up this weekend. La Primavera, the first classics of the season, and just the most frustrating race to predict because mm. what hoodie fill us in. Every year we talk about this, but why is this race so difficult to anticipate and predict? Well, for a few different reasons. It's the first monument, the first classic of the season, so it's long, 298Ks. I think the longest race on the whole calendar. So that kind of throws a a curveball into the peloton because people are kind of coming into these races. A lot of these early season races aren't that intense, aren't that long. Uh, Perry Nice and Terreno, those are real races, but most of this stuff up to now haven't been really world tour, old school, hard man caliber. And then suddenly you got to race 298Ks. Granted, it's a relatively easy course, relatively easy pace until the last hour, but still that extra, extra 100Ks at the end of the race bites. And then uh, you know it's kind of a weird place in the calendar. It's it's uh, you know it's a cl- it's a sprinter's race, first off, of course, but you have to get over the Poggio, get over the Tripresa, have your team there. But it's also the classic guys are not quite at their peak. You know they want to hit their peak almost really a month from now or three weeks going into Flanders Roubaix. So it's kind of this weird race that's kind of you know you have like twenty guys who can win it. And the difference between winning and losing sometimes is just a question of centimeters as we've seen some great finishes the last couple of years. But for me, it's one of my favorite races of the year. I know it's not the most thrilling, exciting race, and but I just think it's great. I mean, I love uh, the, the whole scene down there on, the, on San Remo, coming over the Poggio and the Tripresa, cool little climbs. They're almost little nibs there, knobs on the, on the coast. But who doesn't love Italy? It's springtime, it's the first monument, 
it's wildly unpredictable. I think it's I think it's like a bottle of spumante. You shake it up, you have no idea what's going to come out. I just love those final 30 kilometers because they are such a tactical game. And, and that comes down to the distance of this race where nobody can burn more than one match, really, unless they're crazy, crazy fit. And you watch this race and you realize just how intricate these tactics are. It becomes less of a, less of a fitness test and more of a, a game of, of brinkmanship and also just who has the most teammates to work for them. Well, you know who has the most really strong teammates? Yeah. I would believe that would be the blue train of Team Quickstep. Uh, look, we have a, a whole long list of riders who can win this race. Sprinters, breakaway guys, Vincenzo Nibali can win. But I think everyone right now is looking at one man, and that one man is Julian Alaphilippe, because in the last week we have seen, well, in the last few weeks, we've seen Julian Alaphilippe put on a display. He was winning in San Juan. He, of course, won Strada Bianca. He won at Tirreno Adriatico. He won a field sprint at Tirreno yeah. Adriatico. Amazing. Um, he is extremely strong right now and I, I mean hoodie is it safe to say is, is he our odds on favorite right now to win this race he's he's right there i think that uh you gotta also include his teammate viviani that's gonna create an interesting little dynamic there i'm not quite sure how quick step's gonna play that because viviani really being italian being a sprinter wants to win this race more than anything so you know i'm not sure i mean ala philippe you know he was in that uh that uh, finish line sprint a few years ago with Saran and Kiwakowski, 2017. So he's obviously a rider who can get there with the sprinters. But, you know, do you back Viviani or do you back, back Alaphilippe? So that could kind of create a little fracture on that team. It could make an opening for some other riders. I mean, you know, Gaviria and, uh, you know, Sagan's going to be there. Groen Vega, his first crack at it. We'll see. Um, but, man, the list is long. I totally disagree with you, Hoodie. That That's a garbage take. Desuna Quickstep is so perfect for this race, and there's not going to be a fracture. As we've seen throughout the last couple of years, these guys love racing as a team, and they do it really well. Here's how it goes. They've got Philippe Gilbert for an early move on the Cipressa. They've got Julian Alaphilippe for an attack on the Poggio. They've got Elia Viviani in the field for a sprint. And then you have Stenik Stibar hanging out with him to lead him out for the sprint, not to mention a couple other guys that are pretty good at fetching water bottles, if not winning races. It's, there's just no way anyone's going to beat Quickstep in this. I guess the question, though, is that if Quickstep is riding for Viviani, um, who's to say that Viviani is going to outkick Gavidia or Gronewagen? I mean, Gronewagen, you know, he has never done this race. It's going to be a bit long for him, but he is very strong. Um, but Gaviria, danger man. Uh, I think he could be a real, real spoiler. I would tip Gaviria over Gronewagen by a long shot. And yes, he's he, he's due to win a big monument like this. Uh, well, to win this one specifically. You know, another danger man. I'm going to put this out there. Caleb Ewan. Yeah, you're a bit, you're real Caleb. hot. You're really hot on the uh, little Aussie right now. Yeah. He did a story for a website. We check it out on velonews.com. We got a good story about Caleb Ewan that Fred did. So Caleb Ewan was second place, close, very close second place last year. Yeah. Uh, Nibbly got away, but he was zooming in there and just missed it by a hair. But um, I caught up with him at the UAE tour to talk specifically about Milan San Remo, about that oh-so-close finish about what his move to Lato Sudal means for him. It's, you know, it sounds like they're building the entire squad around him. And just why Milan San Remo is so difficult. So let's check in with Caleb Ewan. 
Right now I'm joined by Caleb Ewan. Caleb, you are one of the uh, riders we're watching as we head to Milan-San Remo. Um, my first question for you is when you think back, last year's Milan-San Remo, you finished a very close second place. What is the memory that comes to mind? What is the image of that race that comes to mind? Um, well, it was actually, it was pretty frustrating because, uh, yeah, I won the, the sprint behind Vincenzo and, yeah, he was only yeah, a couple of seconds in front at the end. So um, it was frustrating coming so close to, to winning my first monument. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, preparation's gone well this year as well. So, you know, I should be ready to go again and hopefully it's a bunch sprint this time. What's your preparation uh, look like between now, the UAE Tour, and the race? Um, in between now and, and the race, I'll just do uh, Paris-Nice and then the rest training. So, uh, yeah, not too much. And then of the races you're doing this year, how important is Milan-San Remo for you? Um, yeah, pretty important. You know, it's the only monument I'm doing of the, of the year. And I guess it's the, the one classic that I'm really focusing on. Um, it's my big goal for the first part of the year before the, the Grand Tours come. So, uh, yeah, I'd say it's... it's yeah, a very important race for me. You know, as fans, we love this race because, you know, there are the climbs and the chaos, but I can imagine as a rider, it must be a frustrating race because of how difficult it is to read what's going on in those last uh, few kilometers. What can you say about the challenge presented by this race? Yeah, you know, it's it's a hard one to judge because it's one of those races that can go either way. You know, there's not many times uh, you're going to see a race where I'm on the same podium as Vincenzo. So it's, it's one of those races that can go either way. And um, I guess, you know, it, it's, it's a race where you have to really save as much energy as possible. And I guess the rider that's, that's ridden the race the, the best will have the best sprints in the end. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I think they say it's, it's the easiest race to finish, but the hardest race to win. So it's a, it is a very, very difficult one to, to manage. We've also uh, heard that it's very difficult to manage because of the distance. Now, you had a great sprint at the final of last year's race. Was it surprising to have those type, that, that good of legs after such a long day on the bike? Um, yeah, was, there was, last year was the second time I've done it, and the first time I did it the year before, um, I went to sprints and I had no legs at all. Um, but yeah, last year, you know, my preparation changed a lot, and I really trained to, to go that distance and, and be out of sprints at the end. And um, yeah, I guess uh, yeah, maybe it was a little bit of a surprise that, that I had good legs in the end. But I could also feel on the Cipresso and Poggio that my, my legs were feeling good as well. So um, yeah, you know, I knew I was going to have a, a reasonably strong sprint. I would assume then that you are the, the team's big card to play. Is that the uh, strategy for the team going into this race to set you up? Yeah, for sure. You know, they, they've said that I'm yeah, definitely the leader for the race and, and they want to really uh, put a full team around me. And I think after last year, they're, they're really backing me to, to get a good result and hopefully win. So here we are, the sixth stage of the UAE Tour. A few days ago, we saw you take a really dramatic win across Hattadam. You know, what does it mean to get uh, a victory like that so early in the season? Yeah, it's good. I guess it's good for the confidence. And, you know, especially going into San Remo, it's great to have a, a win that's in a, in, a harder uh, yeah, in a harder stage than, a, you know, maybe just a typical sprint stage. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm happy with where my form's at now. I've still got a little bit of improvement to go, but I think uh, this race would have brought me to a, another level and then I'll have a little bit of a break in between now and Paranese, and then I think Paranese will really finish off my, my preparation and, and then I should be ready to go for San Remo. So, you know, you were heads and, heads and shoulders above everyone on that uh, sprint. You know, on some of the flatter sprints, it still seems like uh, Viviani, Gaviria may have 
just a, a margin ahead of you. Is that, you know, how are you viewing how you compare to those two sprinters right now? Um, well, I'd say the the only sprint that I've really been able to to start when I wanted to and all that kind of stuff was in the, the stage of Down Under where I got disqualified. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I could beat Viviani there, and I just haven't had the chance to really go head-to-head with him and Gavri yet. But I think, uh, yeah, when I when I'm able to and, and I'm there in good position, then I can I can definitely match them. So at this point, it comes down to just sort of positioning in those chaotic finales. Yeah, I think when there's such good sprinters here, you really have to to win. You have to get everything perfect, and um, yeah, I just haven't haven't really nailed a, a fast flat finish yet. But you know, I'm I'm confident that my my speed can match those guys. Well, we have a fl- uh, flat sprint finish tomorrow, final stage of the UAE Tour. So Caleb, best of luck tomorrow. Thank you. Okay, well, Caleb Ewan. I I don't know, I don't know if he's gonna win. He's the most adorable rider in the Peloton, I'd say. He's really short, kind of like cute and cuddly. He's great. You, you, you so even more so than uh, oh, your man at Mitchelton Scott, uh, the Colombian uh, Esteban Chavez. Esteban Chavez. That's a close yeah, one. That's cute. Off. Really close yeah. one. Uh, well, they're it's a climber and a sprinter, so they're a little different. Uh, guys, it's put your money where your mouth time. Let's make some predictions. Uh, for this race. You know, as we know that Milan-San Remo can end in a breakaway finish or it can end in a sprint or small group, whatever. Uh, I say let's let's make some predictions for who we think is going to win both field sprint and, you know, breakaway or small group. So who wants to go first? Hoodie is scratching his head, which is the international sign for I want to go first. <laughs> All right, Hoodie, let's get your breakaway champion and your sprint champion. All right, for the sprint champion, I'm going to go for Elia Viviani. He's Italian. He's fast. As Spencer just outlined, the strongest team in the race. I think it's his year to win. For the breakaway rider, I think I'm going to go with Matteo Trenton, Mitchelton Scott. He has been quite perky this spring. He's got some good results. But I think he also knows he's not going to be strong enough to beat the fastest guys on the line. So I think he might try to surprise everybody find a companion to jump on the Poggio. Hmm. That's a good pick. I like that one. I was going to pick Viviani. He went for it last year, too. Remember, he was a guy who broke away on the flats to try and chase back Nibali. Uh, and you wonder what it would have happened if he would have just pulled on the front for Caleb Ewan. But we'll never know. That's the best thing about bike racing. Yeah. All right, Spencer, what are your picks? Uh, I wish Hoodie hadn't picked Viviani because I was going to pick him. So I'll go a different direction for my sprinter. I'm going to say Sam Bennett. He won a couple stages at Paris-Nice. I think he's riding really well right now, and I do not think Peter Sagan is on good enough form to win San Remo. I think that means that Bora Hansgro will shift gears and back the Irishman. You always, get, you, Every once in a while, you get a surprise winner at San Remo, and this might be the year for Sam Bennett to be that surprise. When it comes to the breakaway, I'm going to go chalk on my prediction with Julian Alaphilippe, like we've been talking about. The Frenchman is flying. He's got that goatee perfectly manicured. Mm. He's goofing around in the team car for the little Twitter videos. This guy's hilarious. He's, he's like a French Peter Sagan. I like it. Uh, okay. Uh, for my sprint finish, I am going to choose Crash Dangerfield himself, 
Mr. Fernando Gaviria. Yeah. I really want him to keep it upright. I'd love for him to win this race. Um, go for it, Gaviria. We, we all remember that thrilling finale when he went down, forced, um, was it Cancellara? And Sagan. They and both Sagan. swerved around him. I think it was 2016 or... Cancellara, yeah. I just remember his bike went horizontal. To yeah. the fr- I mean, it was a complete amazing move. Um, kudos to Cancellara for keeping it up, right? And as for a long-range missile, a man who could actually make this work, I'm going to go with Zdenek Stibar. I think that he may be a man to uh, go on an early breakaway. He's on good form. We saw him win Omlup Hat Nusblad. Oh, it um, was a good one, huh? I wouldn't bet my, you know, I wouldn't bet my car that he's going to win, but uh, just, uh, uh, you know. Not much to bet there. That's true. Uh, <laughs> Stibar is my long-range missile, but yeah, boy, we have a lot of quick step in there. Every Everyone has a quick step rider, so I'm telling I, you, this team to be De Koenig quick step. Oh, that it is. is a good team this year, huh? Uh, first quick step, safety jogger. <laughs> no, quick step. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at velonews.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velonews.com. Subscribe to the Velonews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velonews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. The Velonews podcast is produced by Velonews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Villainous podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boo Goo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drums. <laughs>